we've been talking much about prayer. Prayer is the source of nourishment for the Christian life. Without it, the soul begins to waste away, not receiving the nutrients that it needs, very much like the physical body wastes away when it does not receive proper food. A lack of proper nutrition deteriorates the body. The body may begin to buckle under its own weight, unable to even support itself, becoming susceptible to disease and prone to illness. Likewise, a lack of prayer will deteriorate the soul, so that in weakness it becomes more susceptible to the sickness of sin. A body without proper nourishment impairs its growth and development, just as a soul without proper prayer is hindered from growing in Christ-likeness. And a lack of proper nourishment will create fatigue, impeding a person's ability to focus on his earthly needs. In the same way, a lack of proper prayer hinders the ability to focus on one's heavenly needs. It is no wonder, then, that the Apostle Paul frequently, no matter what the topic is that he is writing of, always pauses long enough to remind the people of the importance of prayer. For two weeks now, we have looked upon this particular letter to Timothy and looked specifically about both the elements of prayer and the content of prayer, learning what it means to have well-rounded prayer. This morning, we continue by learning how God influences our prayer. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I want to bring to you a message that I've titled The Well-Rounded Prayer. Prayer is a response to God. This morning's message builds on the last two messages, and if you've not heard them, I would urge you to listen to them at some point. As always, I do ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. First Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. You may be seated. After a particularly brutal game, the football coach Vince Lombardi, well known as the coach of the Green Bay Packers, stood before his team in the locker room. They had just experienced a devastating loss, and most everyone was in a pretty foul mood. The players were expecting to be assailed for their performance, or rather lack of performance. 
But to their surprise, Coach Lombardi did not do that. Instead, he picked up a football, held it high before them, and then he said, gentlemen, this is a football. The point of that simple statement? To bring them back to the basics. Sometimes it's the basics that hinders people the most. Thinking it's so simple, they overlook their importance. And so people sometimes need to be reminded of their foundation so that they can then build upon that foundation. That is what Paul does in our text. In the discussion of prayer, he goes back to the basics. But he doesn't go back to the basics of what prayer is, though he's speaking about prayer. He returns to the basics of God. In this case, Paul, he's not spending time reminding them about what prayer is. He reminds them who God is. This is because what we know about God determines how we pray to God. What we believe about God will determine what we pray, when we pray, and how we pray to God. Who God is informs our prayer. Critical to the passage here of 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7, is not just the understanding of the command to pray, but to understand that our prayers are born out of the character of who God is. In the circumstances here, the instruction to pray for all people to be saved it's built on the understanding, then, that God wants all people to be saved. Quite simply, because God is a God who desires all people to save, be saved, or desires the salvation of all people, then we pray for the salvation of all people. To pray more deeply, then, Paul takes Timothy and, and the entire Ephesian church that he writes to back to the basics of who God is. This morning, then, we look upon our text and we learn four aspects of who God is and what God has done. And I want you to see how who God is and what he has done now influences how people pray. The first reason we pray to God is because he is the God of salvation. Verse 4. If prayer is a response to who God is, the very first thing we learn from our text is that we pray for the salvation of people because God is a God of salvation. See how he's described in verse 4. Beginning in verse 3, it says, Prayer is good. It is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That verse speaks of the Lord's patience with people when he gives them opportunity and time to respond to this gift of salvation rather than just executing his judgment at any given moment. And yet, despite the Lord's desire, Psalm 5, 4 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. That indicates that there's evil present or wickedness present. It still occurs. 
And yet that wickedness cannot be present with the Lord. And so there are going to be some that will not be saved. Not all people will be saved. Though the Lord may desire that they be saved. That truth informs how we pray. It determines how we pray. If the Lord desires that people be saved, and if we love the Lord so much that we desire to see his will be done and his desires fulfilled, our prayers would reflect that by praying that people would be saved. How do we do that? By praying supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for all people, for kings and all who are in high position, that all may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. But as we just said, God desires all people to be saved, but not all people will be saved. This verse by itself makes believers uncomfortable, partly because it's often misrepresented in a variety of ways. Most common, the assumption is that this verse teaches universalism, meaning it teaches that since God desires all people to be saved, then all people will be saved. But we have to take into account all of Scripture. We have to allow the full counsel of God's Word to speak. Scripture must interpret Scripture. And as we just read in Psalm 5-4, not everyone will be saved. In fact, there are times when people's desire to follow their own counsel instead of the Lord's counsel is so intense that God eventually just turns them over to themselves and allows them to just follow their own ways. The severe judgment is spoken of in Romans 1.24. It says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Same place took place in the Old Testament. Something Paul recounts in Acts 14.16 when he preaches, In the past generations, he, God, allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. And then the Lord himself affirms this, saying, I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsel. There is a point when people are allowed to turn away from the Lord and turn towards themselves, leading them not to eternal salvation, but to eternal condemnation. The misinterpretation of this verse comes in not understanding the difference between God's perfect will and God's permissive will. The Lord's perfect will is seen in the Garden of Eden. When God's creation was made and it was all good and it was perfect, there was no sin. And so that's his perfect will. But God's permissive will is seen at the fall. <coughs> Though God may desire that none should sin, clearly Adam and Eve's choice to rebel allowed sin and evil to occur, to enter the world. That's what we see here in 1 Timothy. God's perfect will is that indeed all would be saved. His permissive will is that some will perish. They will bear the consequences, the full consequences of their sin. But that's not something that the Lord takes pleasure in. In Ezekiel, it says, I ha Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. 
Later on in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 33, the Lord reaffirms that he finds no pleasure in the condemnation of the wicked. But he uses that as a reason to implore Israel to turn to him or return to him. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? If you have the Reformation Study Bible, as some people in our church do, you'll find an important note from our scroll on this point. He says, not everyone will be saved. But God's benevolence, his kindness, is seen by the fact that he takes no delight in the death of the wicked. It just further points to God's goodness, that he's willing to be patient and wait. It's easy for us to rejoice over somebody we dislike or disagree with. It's even more or even easier when it's someone who is just evil and wicked. In an extreme example, how many people would have celebrated the death of Adolf Hitler? And who could really fault them for that? And yet the Lord, according to this verse, takes no pleasure in that. That's a wasted life. There was one more person who turned from God and then... In rejecting God, he brought others with him. He had created further destruction. As a just God, he will eternally punish the wicked like Hitler. He needs to for their rejection. And yet, at the same time, he can lament the loss of their soul. And this is where, once again, our prayers are a response to God's character. If the Lord takes no delight in the destruction of the wicked, then we return to the instruction to pray for all people, praying that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, that people would be saved. Notice how that prayer from verses 1 and 2 overcomes the culture. Look at the text, which says, God desires all people to be saved. But how are they saved? It says, by coming to the knowledge of the truth. As we learned last week, in in times of chaos and times of calamity, it becomes very difficult to discern what is true and what is not true. Something we discussed in verses 1 through 3. Just as an example, think about 2020 and, and what happened at the announcement of all the shutdowns, whether in the U.S. or worldwide. People panicked. Disorder ensued, and nobody knew what to believe. People still don't know what to believe. The result was an environment in which two things happened. First, in that chaos and calamity, truth could easily be undermined. So even when truth was presented, we weren't sure if it was actually true. And second, falsehood could easily be propagated. That's the case for the Ephesian church here that Paul is writing to and and where Timothy has remained. While God desires that all people be saved, the church now has these false teachers who are teaching that people are saved only if they have the right lineage. That is, that a person can only be saved if his or her history goes all the way back to the Jews. Believe it or not, there are people who still believe that today. 
ask someone how they know they are a Christian, and sometimes you will get the response, because my parents were or are. But that doesn't save a person. Yet that's what's essentially being taught by the Ephesian church. That's something people still believe. The result of that is disarray, discord, division. And it makes it hard to discern what is actually truthful. And so if we pray according to the desires of God that all people will be saved, we will pray for what? Peaceful and quiet lives. Why? So that people aren't distracted by that chaos. But instead, that they may clearly discern what is the truth. And then be able to appropriate it for themselves. The knowledge and the faith of God's message of truth and salvation. I suspect that this is why the gospel is so so fruitful during persecution. Remember that peace and quiet is not the absence of affliction. Though Paul says to pray for peaceful and quiet lives, he himself did not have what we would call a peaceful and quiet life. Reading through Acts, he had to flee for his life multiple times. There are times when hardship still befalls us, and that may include persecution. The peaceful part of it is that we can remain clear and still focused on God and be stable. So in persecution, for believers being persecuted, they've already apprehended the truth. They are already so convinced by the gospel that persecution is not going to cause them to defect. But in persecution, whose life is peaceful and quiet? The unbeliever. For them, life is calm or at least calmer than those that are being persecuted. This gives them the opportunity then to observe the testimony of the believer being persecuted and allows them a chance to meditate upon the defenses they give of God's truth and to meditate upon the the word of God as they may hear it. The result is that there's an opportunity to discern the Lord's truth and again appropriate it for themselves in faith. And so even in persecution, the Lord's truth thrives. 1 Timothy 3.15 refers to the church as a pillar and buttress of truth, meaning that the church both defends and declares the Lord's truth. And the first step of this defense is to do so through prayer, praying for all people, especially those in high positions, it says, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, that God's truth may go forth and salvation may be seen. Quite simply, if God's desire is that all people be saved, then our prayer should be that all people be saved. When we pray this way, we are participating in the Lord's plan. We're doing exactly what he has called us to do. More importantly, when we pray this way, We're responding to the word, the work, and the worth of God, which means we're worshiping the Lord through prayer. To pray for the salvation of all men is an acknowledgement that God desires all people to be saved, even if not all people will be saved. So why do we pray for all people? Because God is the God of salvation. But God is not only the God of salvation, He is the only God of salvation. First part of verse 5 simply says, For there is one God. And so I want you to note, second, that he is the only God 
of salvation. Acts 17 describes this one and only God. It says, He is the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in a temple made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. There is only one God. There is no other, and there can be no other. He is the one God, first the God of Israel, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But he is also one God existing as Lord over every nation, not just Israel. He's described as one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That becomes part of the issue at the time of the church. Again, they tended to think of salvation in terms of their nationalistic identity. This is why they were teaching that salvation was available only to those who had the right lineage. Only if their lineage was traced all the way back to the Jewish nation. Even today, there's a tendency to think this way. Perhaps I've shared this story before. But there was a time when we were in Israel and our tour guide, Rebecca... In one breath, she would teach you and tell you that Israel was God's chosen people. And then in the next sentence, she would say, but I don't believe in God. I tried several times to have a conversation with her. I asked her how she could say that she didn't believe in God, and yet at the same time, say that Israel was God's chosen people, that she was part of God's chosen people. And all she could say is, we are. She couldn't see the conflict between those beliefs. And so she actually relied upon the concept that she must be okay because Israel was already chosen by God. (coughs) The Lord is not only the God of the God of the Jews. He's also God of the Gentiles. There's not one God over the nation of Israel. There's not one God over the nation of the United States. There's not one God over the nation of China or insert whatever nation you want. There is one God over all people. He is a God of both the Jews and the Gentiles. That's why the gospel then can be described as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Because there is only one God, there can only be one God of salvation. Romans 3.30 describes God. God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. There's only one God who will justify people then. With only one God, there can only be one God that we turn to for salvation. That's a pretty countercultural perspective, both in Paul's day and today. In Paul's day, it was not uncommon for people to believe and turn to a variety of gods for their salvation. In our culture today, here in the United States, most people actually tend to be monotheistic, meaning that they only believe in one God. The problem is that their belief in the one God is not the God of salvation, it's the God of self. But if there is one God of salvation, there's only one God we can turn to and pray to for salvation. 
The nation of Judah sought its own ways and its own will. That is, their God was really the God of self. But it profited them nothing because salvation is found only in the Lord. And because salvation is found only in himself, the Lord implores Judah to return to him. And so he tells them in Isaiah 45, 21 through 22, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. Connection becomes very clear. If there is only one God of salvation, there is only one God we seek for salvation. We could pray for salvation from any God, quote, unquote. But it would be nothing but idolatry because... Nothing else can provide salvation. And so once again, we see how who God is determines how we pray. If he is the only God of salvation, he is the only God we can seek to for forgiveness. He is the only God that we can seek reconciliation with. We pray to God for the salvation of others because he is the only God of salvation. So we move forward in the text we find that salvation is made possible by Jesus Christ. Verse 5 declares, for there is one God. And then it goes on to say, and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ, Jesus. This highlights the third reason for a Christian's prayer. We pray to God because he gave his son as the mediator of salvation. This morning we read part of Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9 is Job responding to Bildad, the Shuite, who in chapter 8 has made the claim that God rewards those who are good or who do good. Job rightly receives, perceives that he has a problem, that he and no person is good. And he asks in verse 2, but how can a man be right before God? Or how can man be in the right before God? And he goes through that whole chapter, chapter 9, upset by his conditions. And he says things like, though I am in the right, my mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. And then as chapter 9 begins to draw to a close, we get this lament from Job in verses 32 and 33 that we read. Job says, for he, for God, is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to the trial together. There is no arbiter, there is no mediator between us who might lay his hand on both. Job is anguished by the reality that there's no mediator. And again, this is because Job has rightly understood his own need Though Job would not live to see it in his lifetime, one day Christ would become that mediator. And so later in the New Testament, it says, Therefore he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. 
a mediator is found in various arenas in society, whether it be in the diplomatic realm, in legal fields, or, or even in business. The mediator is one who will facilitate some sort of transaction between two, two people or two parties of people. Most commonly, a mediator was used to intervene and create reconciliation between two parties when there was conflict. In his state, Job recognized that there's a conflict between God's holiness and his sinfulness. He needed someone to act as a mediator between himself and God. Because the conflict is between God and man, there's only one who could fulfill this role, one who is fully God and fully man. So the role of mediator can only fall to Jesus Christ. Verse 5 identifies him specifically as the man, Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't ignore his deity here. There's no need, though, to mention that Jesus is God because he already does that throughout the entire epistle. In fact, in chapters 1, he's already mentioned twice that Jesus is God. So now he just simply says he's also a man. He emphasizes that humanity. Hebrews reminds us further that his humanity makes him like us, noting, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death Christ he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. This makes him the perfect mediator for people because he can relate to them. Typically there are three views about Christ. There's the view of pluralism, in which Christ is simply one of many deities, one of many gods who can lead a person to salvation. For others, there's the view of inclusivism, which suggests that people are saved in different ways at different times. So some people may be saved by Christ, but others might be saved by their works or whatever it may be. There was a time when Jane Fonda had the opportunity to converse with the Archbishop of Canterbury. At one point, the Archbishop said, you know, I'm sure he knew that she was a great theologian. (laughs) He said, you know, Jesus is the Son of God. And Jane Fonda answered, maybe he is for you, but he's not for me. And the Archbishop replied simply, well, (laughs) either he is, or he isn't. She had adopted the position of so many of either pluralism or inclusivism. But our text calls Jesus the only mediator. This is exclusivism, which is what we find in John 14, 6. Exclusivism says that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. As there is only one God of salvation, he has provided the means for the salvation, and that's only through his son, Jesus Christ, only through one mediator. In this way, Christianity is very exclusive in that there is only one way to God. But it's also very inclusive because it's available to all people because he is the God of all people. Through his son or mediator, God has provided every person with the opportunity for salvation and given the possibility to have a relationship with himself. Without Christ, there is no relationship with God. And so we pray to God because he has allowed us to come to him through Christ. 
first the only God who possesses all knowledge, all wisdom, all power. He's, he's made himself available through Christ as mediator. Why would we not bring ourselves to him in prayer? But then if you take that a step further, why would we not desire that for others? Why would we not also pray supplications, prayers, and intercessions of verse 1 for others as well, that they may have the same access to this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise God? We pray to God because he gave his son as the mediator of salvation. Finally, I want you to note very quickly, we pray to God because he gave a son as the ransom of salvation. Verses 6 and 7, just read, The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. As a holy God, even the smallest of sins offends God. In fact, so offensive to him it is that in his justice he must punish that sin. But it was Christ who would bear that punishment. Anselm of Canterbury explains very clearly, salvation could not have been done unless man paid what was owing to God for sin. But the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay for it. So that same person must be both God and man. And in this way, Christ became a ransom for the sins of people. The concept of ransom, or Christ as ransom, is a heavy theological concept, finding its beginning all the way back at the declaration of Christ as servant in Matthew 20 or Mark 10, when it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This isn't just that Christ paid a ransom. This is Christ actually became the ransom. That he acted in our place. And he died instead of us. Were it not for the work of Christ, the gospel would not exist and salvation would not be possible. And so for that reason, we're told we were bought for a price. So glorify God. Paul describes the ransom as a testimony given at the proper time. Christ as a ransom was actually a prophecy that had been fulfilled. That prophecy that was set forth in Genesis 3.15 as a curse against the serpent, in which God said one would crush the serpent's head, which was, of course, fulfilled in Christ. Galatians 4.4-5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption of sons. It occurred just as God had planned it, happening at the precise moment it needed to happen. This one act, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, it becomes a testimony to all people, to all people at all times, affirming that God, indeed, is a God who desires all people to be saved. If that weren't the case, he would not have offered Christ as a ransom. For Paul, the weight of the truth combined with God's call on his own life, 
It determined Paul's life's work. Verse 7 says he became a herald and an apostle and a teacher. This truth demands a response. Paul responded by heeding God's call. It's interesting to me that by dying on the cross, Christ's mission was to testify to God's desire that all people be saved. For Paul, by proclaiming Christ's death on the cross, he also is testifying to God's desire that all people be saved. In this realm, in this way, Paul's mission and Christ's mission were actually the same, just executed differently, and they were all to point people towards God. The church's call here in 1 Timothy is to do the same thing through prayer. We respond to the ransom of Christ by praying that people indeed would turn to the Lord and appropriate that ransom for their lives. And those prayers then become a testimony to who God is. A good, gracious, merciful God who desired all to be saved. And so we pray to God because he is a God who gave his son as a ransom of salvation. Who God is determines how we pray. For example, if we do not know that he is the God of salvation, or that he is the only God of salvation, we could not or would not pray for the salvation of people. That takes us back to something we learned last week. Prayer is a response to God. When we pray, we are responding to who God is and what he has done. And that makes prayer an act of worship Because that's what worship is. Worship is a response to his activities and his attributes, to his character and his conduct. By that definition, every discipline, or most disciplines of the Christian life, then, are designed to be acts of worship. We gather together on Sundays in response to who God is for the sake of worship. That's what this is. That's why we're here, a time to worship God, because of who he is and what he's done. But it's not just Sunday services alone that are worship. The Great Commission then becomes an act of worship. Our evangelism and our discipleship are not merely something we do because they're commanded. We engage in them because we see what God has done. We see the effect of his work. And so we respond by engaging in evangelism and worship, which then becomes worship. By that definition, forgiveness becomes an act of worship because my forgiveness of someone else is a response to what God has done for me. Having been forgiven by God, we respond to others by forgiving them. And thus it's an act of worship in which we see God glorified. Prayer, in general, is just an act of worship. That means in order to pray better, we need to know God better but look specifically at our text. Beginning in verse 1, it says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so by his command, we pray. But also, why else do we pray? Because, it says, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, 
the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Who God is determines how we pray. The instructions of 1 Timothy are to determine the conduct of the church. And the call here is that the church worship God of heaven by praying for the people of earth. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, indeed you are a good, gracious, merciful God, desiring that all people be saved, Lord. Father, there is no other God. There is no other Lord over our lives, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that we would come to that Lordship and submit to it in prayer. May we worship you by proclaiming your excellencies and by praying that other people would know, seek to know you as well, Lord. Father, as a good God who desires all people to be saved, Lord, I pray that that would be the prayer in our hearts, that all people would be saved, that all people would come to a deeper knowledge of the truth of your Son, Jesus Christ, and come to a deeper relationship with you through that knowledge, Lord. Father, make us into a group of people who praise. We thank you for this time and these words of encouragement and, and exhortation from the Apostle Paul, Lord. Help us to live them out. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. <laughs>